0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello, and welcome back to The Critic Podcast. This week, Graham Stewart speaks to emeritus Professor of History Jeremy Black about historical reactions to national crises. And David Scullion discusses how Europe's response to the coronavirus differs to that of Taiwan with Dr. Radomir Talcote, a fellow at the IEA who studied state interventions in the Chinese economy for his PhD.
1: I'm joined now by Dr. Radomir Talcote, who's a fellow at the IEA. You've written uh, an article recently in The Critic magazine about how the British response to coronavirus and also the wider European response has been more Stockholm syndrome compared to countries like Taiwan. What's the difference between the outlook of the, the kind of elites in Taiwan and the elites in Europe?
2: Well, we'll get back to the possible question of uh, Stockholm syndrome in Western elites in in due course. And I should say, I don't think that applies across the board. Um, But the the issue of Taiwan is particularly interesting here because Taiwan has what appears to be the most successful response to the COVID pandemic of any nation. And uh, although we don't generally see... Taiwanese uh, statistics. Um, At the time I wrote that article a couple of days ago, they had only three deaths, as far as we know, uh, despite having a population about a third of the UK's and being uh, separated from China by a small uh, strait. The Taiwanese context is, is obviously complicated, but there are certain obvious differences. I mean, the first difference is Taiwan is virtually the one nation that doesn't have any relationship with the World Health Organization, the WHO. And when we consider that, it seems that the the most successful responder to COVID is that one country with no relationship with the international health uh, body. If you like, that's that asks uh, some some interesting things. And there's also the, the very particular Taiwanese relationship with China that that Taiwan has. You could say. Uh, the worst relationship there is with China but they seem to have known how to respond best to uh, a pandemic that that began there. There's something called the platonicity error. The writer Nassim Taleb talks about this and he names this after the the philosopher Plato obviously and he defines this as mistaking the map for the territory and I think that's a really informative way of looking at our responses to China Taiwan seems not to have mistaken the map, in other words, how we want to see the, the Chinese state and the Chinese regime with the territorial reality. The problem with this is that the map is, is what makes sense to us. And so we will devise our responses based on, on for example, the data we get from China, Taiwan seemed to have assumed that the data it was getting uh, from China on um, number of cases in Wuhan was probably wildly wrong. And indeed, recent research suggests it was wrong by a factor of 40. Um, and this is a straightforward product of the mendacity, I'm afraid, of the Beijing regime um, in this case. And so what Taiwan seems to have done is just gone about a response based on what the worst situation could be in China. So, for example, Um, It had resources prepared early to send soldiers into factories to make face masks. Um, It was the first country to ban flights from Wuhan, doing so uh, well before the end of January. Facing this adversary every day that's hostile to Taiwan, that it takes that as a given, that's the default mode, seems to have better equipped it to respond to China.
1: I think that's an interesting point you raise, seeing the country as you want to see it because certainly during the Cameron and Osborne era, uh, we saw China purely in economic terms we saw them as as on the steps to joining the world community and uh, we saw them on a journey towards abiding by international norms uh, do you feel like that was um, a mistake to ever imagine that they would join the world community on our terms?
2: I don't know about ever Um but we can we can talk about the foreseeable future. I think it is it 's an excellent question. One of the big misunderstandings, the fundamental misunderstanding in Western statecraft towards China is that the Nixon administration opened China to the West, and that this was China saying yes, slowly, slowly, we want to converge with Western norms, we want mutually beneficial economic relationships with all parties. This became, therefore, China probably wants to reliably share data for the mutual long-term interest. Whereas actually, Chinese policymakers at the time saw this as China opening the West to China. They saw it exactly the other way around. And the author Michael Pillsbury talks about this in his excellent book, The 100-Year Marathon. Um, This is a major problem for our understanding. So indeed, China, at least the current Chinese regime, did not seek to um, converge with Western norms, and we can see this in uh, its its mercantilist trade policy um, and its approach to COVID today.
1: I mean, it's been argued that Europe rose to prosperity partly based off on the uh, the competition between nation states. Um, you know, while at the same time in that period, China was stagnating because it was. Uh, an inflexible bureaucratic bloc. I mean, what's changed since then? What what are the differences?
2: This relates to uh, a convincing theory about the story of European uh, exceptionalism, if you like, um, dynamism, and why the Industrial Revolution ultimately happened in in Britain in particular, but also uh, uh, in Western Europe. The... um, Most of this growth came from a unique capacity for innovation, and innovation is, when you think about it, very odd for a state to encourage, because it's generally strongly against the interests of elites, because innovation creates new wealth, creates new competing uh, economic elites to the previous elite. And so what happened in Europe was partly, perhaps, because of European geography, you know, um, the division of Europe into um, different islands, inlets, peninsulas, division by mountain ranges, inherently created different nation states, whose elites had to compete against each other, and allowed innovation to flourish. That's a, a considerable simplification, and with some exceptions like um, the attempted unification of Europe by the Holy Roman Empire. That's the story. Whereas in China, China became one very large block in which it was hard to escape the dominant power of one elite, who who generally, since the Ming dynasty in particular, have not found it in their interests to allow innovators to flourish. What's happening now, however, is that we are returning to one of these cyclical European uh, attempts at unifying the whole of Europe in the EU. And as you'd expect from that theory, uh, innovation is also again demonstrably falling in Europe. Um, as a cohesive European elite in Brussels creates more and more anti innovation, anti startup uh, regulations in the interests of the old technological elite um, around post war corporates. Um, so the age of dynamism. Uh, as it's been called, is is slowing in Europe as it becomes, if you like, rather more Chinese.
1: I mean, Europe may be becoming more Chinese, but as China opened its economy and embraced some aspects of Western, the Western worldview, it doesn't appear to be doing so in a particularly rules-based way. I mean, some would say China's becoming dominant by trashing international norms.
2: Yeah, I mean, with respect, I'm not sure that China is becoming dominant or that it's necessarily trashing international norms. Um, I think the frictions between the norms of the current Chinese regime um, and, for example, the liberal trade system such as it is are becoming more and more obvious. I think that in the last five to ten years, a series of mental dominoes, if you like, are falling in the West about China. First, we had the economic front, that the mercantile Chinese approach to the world trade system uh, is becoming clearer. Its impacts are uh, becoming clearer. Um, We've let almost a billion low-wage workers into the global economy in the biggest labour market arbitrage in history. We have allowed China to continue to uh, subsidise its export industries against the rules and expectations of the WTO that it joined. now we can see another domino falling in China's approach to sharing statistics and to health crises. Um, an autocratic system approaches these things in a way that is, frankly, bad for the West. We're also seeing the actually, the imposition of the norms of the Chinese state on our political culture in exactly the reverse of what was expected from the Nixon era. So we can see um, attacks on students from Hong Kong at British universities by mainland Chinese uh, students for exercising their right to protest in this country, which is by no means what most mainland Chinese students in the UK are up to, but it's still extremely concerning. So actually, has uh, China converged with democratic, liberal norms? No. Uh, And indeed, the engagement with China, unintentionally, COVID being the most stark example is pushing us towards more authoritarian norms so far.
1: Um, so you've written in your piece about the different responses that countries have had to um, China, and you've written about how in Italy, um, some of the worst response was um, kind of embracing um China and, and always be, being so frightened of being racist, they had a hug a Chinese person day. And the Ch- the Chinese um, government was happy to go along with this and the idea that, you know, the Chinese people, they're people, they're not viruses. And you've also written about um, Taiwan and how Taiwan have coped very well with this because they're well aware of what um, the Chinese state is capable of. I mean, practically, what can the UK do to, to mitigate, um, you know, another crisis like this? You say that they that this is just path of the course in the new age of China.
2: I assume there has to be some sort of large state investigation into our response um, to the COVID crisis in the UK. You know, I should caveat that with the fact that I think the choices that, that Boris Johnson and the government are making are entirely understandable, um, given the pressures and the data that they are, they are getting. I don't dispute the need for a lockdown, given what we understand or what, what um, the modelling tells them. However, um, Taiwan's response and other countries' responses have been much more successful, so these, these need to be studied. And part of the problem here is you can see from many of the graphs that are going around that Taiwan isn't even on that, which suggests that if, if, if we're not allowed to, to discuss or we're not discussing Taiwan as an independent uh, state, which it de facto is, whose norms are we converging to? It's going to be incredibly important in the next couple of generations to maintain as much flexibility and independence towards Beijing as possible. And if you allow Chinese state-linked companies to own parts of your crucial infrastructure, I'm afraid you degrade your de facto independence of movement. We definitely need to move culturally from the relatively supplicatory posture of the Cameron era. We need to simply make more uh, strategic, hard-headed judgments in the education sector, for example. Um, So we should ask why, uh, over the last decade, UK universities have let in 500 Chinese military personnel. And we should begin using the WTO to uh, respond to Chinese mercantilism. We need to develop new rules for imports of products made by subsidised Chinese SOEs, Um, Work with the Office of the US Trade Representative on that. And finally, get serious about UK innovation. Uh, That includes health innovation and and military innovation. And there needs to be a kind of a cross-sector assessment of how we deal with an increasingly crisis-generating adversary, if you like.
1: Do you think there could be a deeper rooted problem uh, in that the, you know, the West is suffering from a, a crisis of purpose and, um, you know, an identity crisis, if you like, that's left us, at least at the start of the epidemic, arguing over what we're allowed to call the virus? um, you know, so it's not to risk offending the Chinese. Is it Wuhan virus? Is it China virus? You know, you know the Democrats in America saying you can't call it China, a Chinese virus because viruses have no nationality, instead of actually facing up to these real and emerging threats of a rapidly changing world.
2: There definitely needs to be a cultural shift in uh, the UK and Western Europe and North America away from, uh, if you like, the post-colonial apologistic stance. Uh, That said, that should be informed by confidence in our liberal values. Uh, There has been, it has to be said, tremendous liberalisation of sorts in China since the 1970s. Um, The economic liberalisations, the free market liberalisations that have happened, have lifted um, hundreds of millions of people uh, out of of abject poverty. Um, And that should be applauded. So I think a prosperous China based on a liberal framework would be a great thing, would be a triumph. The problem is We haven't been confident enough about promoting the other side of our values, which is political liberalism, um, which we should be more confident about as a general stance towards China and otherwise. So yeah, I think there needs to be a lot less apologism in the the postures of Western countries from this point.
1: Dr Radomir Tarko, thank you very much for joining us on the Critic Podcast.
3: Well, for this segment of the Critic Podcast, I am talking to Jeremy Black, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Exeter, and perhaps one of the most prolific historians in the world. He's been awarded the Samuel Elliot Morrison Award for Lifetime Achievement. Jeremy, welcome to the Critic Podcast. Uh, good afternoon. I want to be thinking about the coronavirus crisis in terms of particularly British history and how in previous times British people, the press, the church, governments have reacted to moments of crisis and tension. Have they wanted more state control or have they quickly wanted to reassert old-fashioned liberties. So is it fair, would you say, that there has, uh, the, in the long course of British history, always been this tension of response between uh, an, an authoritarian solution and uh, those who, who felt that the old libertarian approach would, would see us through?
4: Well, I think that's an excellent question. I think there's always been a tension, whether in periods of war or peace, of crisis or not of crisis, between authoritarianism and uh, its opposite. And I think this uh, current crisis is no different. I mean, obviously, you get people saying, oh, nothing will ever be the same again, which <laughs> I have to say is a, is a remarkably um, silly remark, because one, uh, one has heard that endlessly through time. But um, if what you're looking to do is to look at analogies, I can't think there has been a close down so complete or attempted to be so complete of pre-existing practices since probably one's looking at the 1650s and the authoritarian. Uh, interregnum government which after all tried to suppress all sorts of things including of course famously maypoles. Um, You know in a way you had the end of monarchy, the end of aristocracy, the end of the bishops, the end of all sorts of things Um, and that I would have said is the most authoritarian government. Uh, I mean certainly much more so than in the uh, French Revolutionary or Napoleonic Wars when Despite changes in the law, nevertheless, uh, general elections went on being held. there were still opposition newspapers there was still criticism of government, and governments also fell uh, and In uh, World War One and World War two although in practice many aspects of the constitution were suspended and noticeably so general elections uh, nevertheless the degree of control is not completely similar to what we're seeing now so i think I mean, obviously these are different circumstances the pra- the way in which a disease is spreading but I certainly think that, yes, you could see it as an authoritarian response. And what you see in any crisis is that there are some people who are happiest to shout for the state to do more, and indeed uh, zealous, you will note, for the idea of sort of shipping your neighbours. So, gosh, Mr Jones went out and walked twice with his dog. He is obviously a state criminal. And, of course, that reminds us of the practice of sort of neighborhood policing by uh, authoritarians that you see classically with left-wing societies. I mean, you still see it in Cuba. uh, You saw it in East Germany, of course. And I dare say you will find many people in Britain, alas, who are only too happy to try and do the same uh, today or in the future.
3: You spoke about the Napoleonic Wars as the, you know, the very long period of warfare and, and control that, that came with that. And the uh, Lord Liverpool's government is, is, is always portrayed uh, as a very reactionary one. Could you perhaps say a little bit more about what life in wartime was like during the Napoleonic Wars for people on the home front, what, what level of, of government interference there really was in their lives uh, and in the aftermath w- whether the, 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 the Liverpool government's uh, reaction rule w- was actually just working through the, the problems that the, 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 the dislocations that, that the long period of war with France had created or, or was it actually part of their wider, very ultra-conservative agenda?
4: Well, I don't think, first of all, that the Liberal government should be seen as ultra-conservative. I think it was, uh, it certainly, if you look at the standards of Europe at that period, it wasn't ultra-conservative, and it was quite cautious about the extent to which it tried to stay away from the... Uh, counter-revolutionary policies of some of the governments on the continent. Um, I think you're absolutely right that it, there was a difficult situation in the late 18-teens and early 1820s. There's post-war recession. There is the demobilization of a very large uh, army and navy, with a lot of people being a lot of men being released onto the labor market, which cannot absorb them. Um, there are many problems. The idea that this is some sort of white terror, and you know the frequent references, endless references, one should say, to Peterloo, though, uh, mischaracterizes the nature of government in the period. Um, uh, you, you started off by asking about the nature of the home front. Well, it's worth bearing in mind that Britain had been at war with france and or spain between 1689 to 1697 1702 to 13 1718 to 20 1739 to 48 1756 to 63 and 1778 to 83 and that was leaving aside other conflicts uh, which he which she had been engaged in with so war itself is not was not a novelty and the disruption that war could bring, whether it's from the press gang or Frank- Franco-Spanish privateering, higher taxation, was not a novelty either. What was different, uh, I would suggest, um, about the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic War, particularly the French Revolutionary War, is you get a recurrence of what you'd seen earlier in the 18th century, but had not seen uh, to the same degree in the Seven Years' War, the War of American Independence, and that 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 is the equivalent of a fifth column, um, and the equivalent of the fifth column. I'm not trying to judge or not or be critical or praiseworthy of the people involved. Was what you might see the say the Jacobites had involved earlier in the earlier conflicts, and that inevitably meant that in years like 1793 through to 98, 98, of course, you have a big Irish rising, 97, you have naval mutinies. The government was understandably anxious about domestic uh, public opinion. Uh, On the whole, uh, more people were, or far more people were loyalists than radicals. Uh, The government was able to uh, arm thousands and thousands of people in the volunteer movement in the militia uh, and the situation held but there had been anxiety and that did lead to uh, measures to for example limit uh, the freedom of what could be expressed although as I said parliamentary opposition continued now in the late 18-teens, I mean, one or two of it, prefigurements of it earlier, but in the late 18-teens, you have a revival of radicalism. It's a radicalism that's essentially domestic. It doesn't look uh, to foreign examples. still less to any foreign money or support, which, whereas obviously the French had in the 1790s provided, for example, arms and troops to help the Irish Rising of 98 and, and so on. Uh, there's no equivalent of that in the late 18-teens, but the government is worried I mean remember there isn't a national police force, uh, you could argue if you want that that's the major factor at Peterloo it's not so much um, the, uh, the intentionality of government being in any way different to what you might have seen in episodes over the last 50 years it's the fact that you don't have a police force trained in crowd control without using uh, without using arms, I think that is a, a particular problem.
3: Bringing things forward to, to the modern day, I mean, we, we naturally turn to wartime examples to uh, as our historical reference point to some of the restrictions currently in place because of coronavirus. Uh, do, do these comparisons really have value, though? I mean, it does strike me that even in wartime, you, that you know, most people. On the home front, you know, could go shopping. Okay, maybe rationing imposed in the Second World War, but they could go to the cinema, they could go to the dance uh, dance hall, and so on and so forth. Actually, what we have now is is very different, uh, and with a very different style of enemy.
4: Well, it's certainly a very different style of opponent. Uh, enemy, I think, suggests some sort of manipulative power in which there's some you know, power of a virus plotting <laughs> against us. So I, I'm not going to say that. Now, as far as you are specifically as the comparison with the war. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because in World War I, uh, from the Zeppelins and then the Goethe bombers onwards, and in World War II, of course, uh, from bombers and then subsequently rockets as well, uh, the home front was very much under direct attack. And in the Second World War, thousands of people died as a consequence. Now, probably today, with the kind of rather hysterical society we live in. Um, there would have been, you know, if, you know, they would have probably closed all sorts of things because, you know, the idea might have been that if you went out, you might have been exposing yourself to greater danger. But the practicality was, A, they knew that wasn't going to be to workable. Two, uh, they knew it was actually sap morale very greatly. Three, um, they also knew they were in for a long haul of the war. And all of those, and there are other factors as well, as well I mean, that's by no means exhaustive, in a sense, encouraged people to measures to try and keep morale up. Now, whether those measures were, and we're looking at both world wars here severally, whether those measures, because, you know, I mean, there was blackout in World War One, for example, um, and other regulations, whether those measures included, uh, as they did, um, in effect, uh, communal eating uh, through you know, keeping cafes, restaurants open, uh, whether they included communal entertainment through keeping cinemas or clubs open, um, there, whether there were all sorts of things that were done, whether they included the encouragement of the circulation of cigarettes, um, all sorts of things were done. And I think they did play a role, an important role, in helping to... Um, sustain morale, and also give people a sense of normality, which I think is an important aspect. Now, one of the things that I'm, that is uh, tricky for this present crisis is not just as you started off discussing the extent to which authoritarianism may be encouraged, and even more the kind of, uh, you know, tension between individuals and the kind of sort of spying on people. Uh, which was, of course, encapsulated by those drones, but also the broader question of how morale is to be maintained in this situation. And I'm not sure that we've done it terribly well. Uh, I I mean, to my mind, as you may know, I've written a number of books on strategy, and to my mind, this is a classic example of the operationalization of a strategic question. The strategic question is, how do we keep Britain going in a successful and harmonious a fashion as possible in the face of a major crisis now what we've done is because that is a difficult question we've operationalized that in terms of the measures supposedly best taken to even out pressures on the national health service now that is a meritorious issue but it should not have been an issue allowed to crowd out Uh, all other or most other uh, matters of concern. And to that extent, I think we've had a very serious strategic failure you will know if you're interested, I discuss this in a couple of my books, that um, the notion of strategic failure, particularly in the West, as one that has gathered pace in the discussion of military affairs and international relations uh, as a result in part of the Iraq War, but also as a part of the rather, in the case of Britain, the rather botched, it's generally agreed, they were rather botched strategic reviews of the uh, two teens, so far and what this should encourage us to realise and to think about more is what is the nature of strategic policy making in Britain and whom is doing it. Um, and are there people with the capacity to do it and to think through the distinctions between first, second and third order challenges and the distinctions between uh, operationalizing issues and thinking them th- through first and strategic terms? And I'm not sure we're really doing terribly well at that.
3: And the, there's also, the, of course, that the problem that uh, unlike it in wartime, that, you know, there, there is a, a, a very animated media now always seeking to ask you know the probing questions which may probing or not may actually be taking away government from a more strategic approach to a a headline chasing approach and you know what what the mainstream media doesn't do the social media will will outflank on in in any case it does strike me that that you know military planning in in past wars would, would have come up against enormous pressures uh, uh, and distractions if it had to uh, uh, face the, 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 the scale of, of scrutiny and abuse from, from, from modern media?
4: You identify well the question about the pressure on government today from both the official media and from what might call the social media. I think part of the difficulty we're facing is that institutions and indeed individuals, and it's crucially important for the latter for their mental health, have not yet acquired a sort of carapace, um, a kind of protective armour against this sort of stuff, of just simply saying, yes, there's going to be a lot of froth out there, there's going to be a lot of noise, there's going to be a lot of agitation. Um, In some respects, you're better off with people emoting all over social media than, than with them actually trying to stage a revolution Um, So I think one's got to put this in perspective. But yes, I think you are correct. In a 24-hour news cycle, it causes a lot of problems, which is why you need people with tougher nerves uh, running institutions, or you have to accept that they are just going to succumb. They are not going to be able to cope with the multiple pressures on them. And once you move to direct action or to uh, government by sentiment, public sentiment, then you end up with a total mess. I mean, I always say to people who are in favor of direct action, and I say this to shock them. These do not represent my views. I always say to them, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go and sort of burn down an abortion clinic, beat up a few groups of people you don't like, and then go off shooting badgers? I mean, the whole notion is that people assume that in some respect there is going to be a unitary view which, what a surprise, reflects their view and they expect this to be answered. Well, the reality is that if you're running something, whether it's a seminar or whether it's a society, your responsibility is to the people as a collectivity, not simply to an individual who might be very angry. And, you know, people are very angry. That's what they're like. Um, And they get more angry when they're frightened and anxious and a lot of people are frightened and anxious out there and a lot of people also are very good at rationalizing their selfishness which is not surprising they have a lot of time to hone that Um, and you know you've just got to be careful because There is a big difference between what I talked about earlier, which is the problems of implementing policy, where you have to accept that not everybody is going to accept policy and you have to be very careful at criminalising those people whose views are different. You have to be very careful in that respect, but that is different from the process of considering uh, at the outset what policy you might wish to follow and why. There is then a separate issue of how you articulate that best. Now, clearly, in the process of policy formation we are a democracy we want to respect and reflect uh views that are held but we are not a diurnal democracy a daily democracy in which every day because the weather is good or because people are angry or because it's been cloudy for a week uh people change their views and therefore government should change the views likewise we don't do that with tax rates Uh, We don't do that with whether we go to war or send troops to a particular area. We shouldn't be doing that in matters of public policy all the time.
3: Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Um, We'll see in time just how strategic the government's approach has been uh, to the coronavirus. Uh, But uh, that is something we shall return to another day. I've been talking to Professor Jeremy Black. Uh, Jeremy, thank you very much for giving us that wider perspective.
4: A pleasure.
0: If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.